I'm supposed to say poet master Gunther, so that's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> I like the poor master. All right. <laughs> What is up, everybody? Welcome back to a Sunday afternoon edition of the Run Your Mouth podcast. We're back on with Dr. Krim, and you're rocking a whole new look here. Yeah, I know. Short hair. I uh, can't. So since we're doing this on the phone, I need my glasses to actually see what's <laughs> going on. So up close, getting older. <laughs> I think I think the glasses are a good look for you. I, yeah, I feel I like if so. I if I saw this Dr. Krim, I might take the diagnosis more seriously than Mountain Man Dr. Krim. Probably. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah. I got a lot of... Uh, Anyway, my wife uh, doesn't like it because my patients with my glasses off, they call me Richard Gear. But <laughs> no, it's a good so. look for you. Yeah, I, and I almost I feel like we're doing real television now that every time I have you on, it's a whole different look. It's like we actually got a wardrobe department. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, all right. So we're going to delve into today because I, I I think I'm going to be covering this for end of year, uh, which is kind of uh, the topic of gender dysphoria. Sure. Uh, and I, I think. For a while, I didn't really care about the topic because uh, me and you, we're liberty lovers. People, right. adults want to go out and do their own thing. I don't care. And like also as a person that doesn't personally keep religion, I don't feel a need to impose religious values on other people. And so when it comes to kind of social conservatism, even though like a part of my brain goes, oh, that's odd. Or I don't know if that would push society in the right direction. I also go, yeah, but I'm not living that way. So it's not for me to impose on other people. So it's like live and let live. But yeah. we seem to be living in a new paradigm where similar to Corona, and when I say similar to Corona, when the vaccines first came out, it didn't seem like there was a ton of evidence of the utility or the studies that it was safe, right? And yeah. I'm seeing a very similar thing now where we seem to be gung-ho on pushing the fact that you could be a gender different than the one you're born as, and the kids can recognize that and make a transition. It seems like that is kind of... Um, and so similar to Corona thing, I look at it and I go, well, this is kind of new. So how could you possibly have research that this is a good idea? Now, I'm not saying it's a bad idea, but they approach us with the confidence of like, they're 100% sure that children can make this uh, can make this evaluation about themselves. And we should even probably take it upon ourselves to teach them in school that they have these options and that we should then shame anybody who's criticizing this. But it's like... I just look at it and I take a step back and I'm like, this is new. So how could you possibly have the information that you would need like to make an evaluation that this is a good approach? Yeah, I mean, certainly. And, and you can see, I mean, the standard in medicine with children is like, you know, you can become what's called an emancipated minor. But in general, under the age of 18, you're not even allowed to go into a doctor's office without a parent or guardian present. So like if I have a 16 year old show up in my office, I'm, I, I can't see them because they're not with the parent or guardian. Now, there are some exceptions like emergencies and emancipated minors, but in general, you know, you need a parent present. So if if the standard is that kids can't even consent to treatment without a parent or guardian present, you know, do they really have all the full intellectual capabilities? And we can get into that a little bit more later about whether they can consent and what it means to actually understand and have consent. Right. Okay. So let's go. I actually, I, I uh, you know, I'm trying to be a little bit less ADD as I become a better broadcaster. So I have some notes here of what I was uh, considering as, I guess, what would be necessary from, I'm not a scientist, but I guess from like just a data understanding 
to like present this as being a good idea to kids. So I look at it and I go, you can't possibly have the information on this. So it seems like a very bold recommendation and that it seems like a particularly bold recommendation when like you're even censoring, questioning it or like you're not just leaving it to people. It just there seems to be some sort of a ramping up of, hey, we don't just need to be tolerant of this, but we need to educate people about the availability of this and celebrate it. And we need to shame and censor anybody who's questioning it. And I just look at, I go, all right, well, what data do you have to support that this, that this works and it's a good idea? So the starting points for me on this would be, I guess I would want to know percentage of the population that identifies as the wrong gender. Then the next I would want to know is, well, what percentage of these people will it resolve itself in at every age group? So like zero to four, four to eight, eight to 12, like how many people that think that they're the wrong gender does that because i've heard stats as high and we can actually take a stop here because i've heard stats as high as 65 to 90 percent of uh kids that identify as a different gender that that will resolve itself on its own do you know because that's a number that's been floated and then oddly it's been a number that's been criticized by the groups of people who are pushing this but here's what's crazy from everything that i read about the groups that are pushing this as they go, those are flawed studies because they included a lot of gay kids that grew up to be gay, but then you're not actually, they don't offer any alternative, uh, uh, research. Like they basically go, the 90% figure is overstated, but even if it's a 20% figure, then being aggressive about having kids change their genders still seems wild to me and to not have alternative data or not have very good data to suggest that it's a low number would seem like a flagrant abuse of like pushing this as being a good idea. I'm just going to restate that to simplify it. I'm saying that I've heard a number presented as high as 90%. And I've heard the best criticism of that being that it's overstated. But to me, the burden of proof would be on people that are pushing this to actually say that it's a low percentage. And at a minimum, they don't even have that research. Does that make sense? Um. Yes. So, so basically what you're, yeah. So essentially like the largest, um, I'm looking at it. This is the American college of pediatricians, uh, their magazine and they give it's, you know, the percentage of children, the percentage of the population that is quote trans is probably less than 1%. And the and the number of kids that have gender dysphoria that resolves in this study that they did is between 80 and 90 percent so i mean the data is definitely there and it's still for now available so that you can see it so you're right the the concern would be okay so if you know the percentage is small and then 80 to 90 percent let's say let's say the percentage is even larger than what that, is you, know. you got a church in your house now or just like the longest doorbell oh. Oh no, that's the uh, that's uh, that's the alarm clock letting me know it's no more. My my wife, I finally put a battery in it, and now I'm regretting it. It's been silent for about 15 years, and I was like, <laughs> oh, I wonder if this clock still works. So clearly it does. So uh, so it's one o'clock somewhere. Okay, so I, I inter I, I'm sorry, I interrupted you, but I, it sounded like you were saying that the research is clear. It's one percent of the population. Uh, will identify as a gender other than the one that they're born with. And as much as 90%, that will resolve itself if medically you don't intervene. Yeah. So basically the, the actual statement in this journal, again, this is coming from uh, gender dysphoria in children from the American College of Pediatricians. 
and it's actually anywhere from 80 to 95 percent uh, of it will resolve. So that's a pre-pubertal children with gender dysphoria, and so 80 to 95 percent will have. But if you just if you just stop there, and you let's say the conversation was just around that one stat, I feel like any logical person would say if only 5% of kids who identify as a gender other than the one they're born with will continue to identify that way, you'd be insane to be treating everybody. I mean, literally insane. It makes zero sense. Right. So, I mean, there is a standard. So they say, so if you take a look at that, so that's, you're right. So let's say 80 to 95% resolve in pre-puberty. So once children do hit puberty and they still persist in their gender dysphoria, that is much more likely to persist into adulthood. Right. Um, therefore, you know, once children hit puberty and they still have the gender dysphoria, then maybe at the age of 16 or older, you could talk about maybe doing things is, at that point. So I guess is some of the, uh, just play devil's advocate, the argument that the transition is easier if puberty doesn't happen. And so it, they're trying to actually intervene prior to puberty. So like, in other words, I, I, I uh, so I, I guess you're weighing the two variables here that 5% of kids, once they actually go through puberty are still going to identify, but it's going to be harder for them to transition. So if you're in that 5%, yes, you are better off of having preempted it, but th that still would be the conversation of, Hey, 95% of the people that feel the way you do no longer feel this way after puberty. And so it, it might be worthwhile to go through puberty because you're no longer going to feel this way. But if you're pretty sure you're in that 5%, we can preempt it, which is still a very different conversation than just like being, hey, if you identify differently, that's an absolute. Yeah. Um, let me let me think about that. Um so say that one more time. All I'm right. So I, I guess if we're playing devil's advocate, because I look at this and I go, all right, it sounds pretty just simple that if 95% of people, this is going to resolve itself, right? Then you would go, mm -hmm. all right, let's wait. And let's not, let's not preach this as a definite. Let's wait. I mean, that just, the, 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 I, to me, that's just black and white. There's no other way about it. If 95, 90% of kids resolve, let's just chill. Let's just chill. Hey, there's no reason to go through with this. You might regret it, but I guess the only value to it might be is that if uh, transitioning prior to puberty then makes that process easier for you in terms of living your life as the other gender later on, then there is some utility to preempting, uh, preempting puberty. And so I guess, but then it, that, that still is a very different paradigm than the way it's currently kind of being presented to kids or seemingly. But I guess then there is at least a little bit of logic, I, I, I guess, to, uh, I, I don't know. It's still just the, the odds don't work in the favor of trying to transition kids if that many kids are resolving themselves. Correct. You know, and, and so my concern would be like, you know, there's the principles of medical ethics and, you know, right. autonomy, beneficence, non-malfeasance non and justice. Right. So if you go down those principles, if you're going to give a treatment to someone like a pre uh, puberty blockers to uh, for a disease, not a disease, let's say a, a mental state that feels one way and 
it forever changes their ability maybe to have children or their growth and development, either mentally or physically. Um, and about anywhere from 80 to 95% once they hit puberty are out of that, you've caused, that's causing harm, right? So it, it's, if, if we're banging it up, so I'm more of a deontologist, which is rules-based, like there's right and there's wrong. Um, but even from a utilitarian perspective, if you're gonna weigh it on the basis of utility, if there's potential for far more harm than, than good. So either either using principles of either deontology or utility, you could say either either way, it's not the right thing to use these. Right. So to, to state it differently, there's a small percentage chance that after puberty, you're still going to identify as the wrong gender. And if you mess up this process, you're going to miss out on a normal life. So we're sure. going to be ruining a lot of people's ability to live a normal life. And if you still identify this way after puberty, you we'll discuss the options that exist in a bit, but I guess there's still our options. Now, another quicker kicker on this, and uh, we're going to get into this a little bit later. So I'm, I'm, I'm jumping this, but I've read that the, this is not a great stat, but the stat is that 20 um, people, transgender people, even after they uh, uh, make a switch are 20 times more likely than the general population to commit suicide. Now, the reason why that's not a great stat is because the better figure would be the comparative number of before and after switching. So if that's still if that's a reduction of 40 times to 20 times. So then I guess if you're going through this, you know, gender dysphoria, it still might be advantageous to go through the switch. The reason before we get into that, the reason why that's relevant to this is that there clearly is a percentage of people who make the switch and are not happy with having done so or experience other medical problems. So now if you're just looking at this from a math and odds thing, so if 80% of people who are kids then just grow out of it, right? So now you only got 20% of people that would have been happy actually making the switch. And now what percentage of those people, even if they do experience gender dysphoria, do the medical options actually make them a happier person, right? So now you're kind of taking it like, imagine you take a thousand kids, right? So how many people would have gone through that process of switching genders and actually have come out at the end happier? You can have actuary tables on this. It's a function of how many people actually regret, you know, going through any treatment options. The number is going to be different for top and bottom surgery. My guess is there's a lot more regret for bottom surgery because you're going to have more medical problems. I mean, you throw tits on anyone. We all like tits. It's not the biggest deal. You get your implants out. It's not the end of the world. You get to enjoy having tits for a little bit. You're looking at a much different procedure if you're uh, screwing around on the equipment, you know, on the bottom. Uh, The point I'm trying to make is that if you just look at it from a number and odds thing, so this idea that we're, well, we got to reach these kids. We got to help these kids. How many people out of a thousand does this actually benefit? Like if you were to take a thousand people who are gender dysphoric, how many people does the and and so the two numbers, I know I'm kind of repeating myself, the two numbers would be how many people regret it after switching and how many people actually post-puberty still think that they are a different gender. It sounds to me like you're looking at a pretty small number of people that are potentially being helped by the current. Like if you give everything to them, that gender dysphoria is real and that you do have options of changing, right? 
So if you take a thousand people and we put this through the process, a thousand four-year-olds, at the end of that process, how many did you actually help with the outcome you were looking for? You're probably sitting at one or two with like 999 being harmed. Right. So, yeah. And I, and the, the statistics in this article say that it's, you know, five to 20% will persist once they hit puberty. So right. let's say yeah, out of a hundred children, that would be anywhere from five to 20 kids. And that's not all children. That's specifically children with gender dysphoria. Right. So, right. you know, so there's potential if you give all, all hundred of those kids treatment, whether it's puberty blockers or surgery, that's anywhere from potential harm to 80 to 95 of them versus a benefit to 5 to 20 of them. So let's talk about the puberty blockers for a second, because uh, I watched that the Matt Walsh do, uh, documentary, um, What is Women? And so mm-hmm. it becomes creepy to me when you're watching. It, it seems to me like the bad uh, um, cosmetic surgeon that if you come into a cosmetic surgery office, and I'm not saying every cosmetic surgeon is bad, and I'm not saying every procedure is bad, or that you might not walk out, fix something, feel more confident. Uh, but it does seem like sometimes you can go to a guy and he starts drawing on you everything he thinks is wrong and convincing you that you're going to look better. And we've all seen pictures of people who've gotten plastic surgery and end up looking worse. So, but I, 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 I n- some doctors are great. Other doctors, not as great. Some people are in it for money. Some people are pushing procedures. It's the nature of the game. When I watch the people who are preaching the gender stuff, particularly for kids, and they don't want to answer questions about the puberty blockers or other procedures, it does look like profiteering at the face. That 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 is what it looks like. And it also looks like, you know, we're creatures of habits. We follow ourselves in line. We like to justify our own actions. So I understand that if you end up in that field and that's what you do, you, you buy into it and you convince yourself that you're helping people. I understand all the flaws of human psychology. Uh, in your estimation, the puberty blockers, because they're trying to push it as like, yeah, you can just pause, like you can put a pause on puberty, making it sound like you can just go through it at a later juncture in time. Uh, if somebody finds out at a later juncture in time that they actually identify as their original gender, I guess, how much harm has been done if you're giving them puberty blockers or the other treatments? So, you know, I think the long-term studies have not been done on that, but I'd imagine the harm would be rather significant because think about it. I mean, you know, we we monitor testosterone even in in men who are testosterone deficient for mental changes or, or hormonal treatments in women, right? There's Certain hormones will lead to increased risks of certain types of cancers. You know, uh, certain hormones lead to increased risk of heart attacks. Certain hormones, uh, like you know, testosterone, can increase the risk of prostate cancer. Obviously, if you're going from uh, woman to man, you know, you don't have a prostate, but it does have other f- effects on 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 stimulation of growth, growth hormones and the possibility of underlying cancer risks. So. There's that. Then there's also just the whole brain development, right? So, you know, even when when children are in the womb, they're exposed to certain hormones. If it's a male, they have some exposure to testosterone more than women, and that'll change the development. So if you're giving exogenous hormones to children, and whether or not you – I don't think you can just say, oh, no harm, no foul, we're just going to pause it now. It's clearly going to have 
potentially long-term effects and potentially cause, you know, significant underlying medical issues. And I guess we couldn't possibly know, because this is new, you couldn't possibly know the effects of giving someone hormones over the course of an entire lifetime. So, so, like, there, yeah. so there, there are certain children who are born with sort of deficiency syndromes and you can find right. them. And then there's also like, you know, if you really uh, want to complicate it, you know, there's children who are born sort of as hermaphrodites, like they'll either have a, a micropenis or, uh, uh, you know, they'll have a vagina without a uterus or they'll, uh, things like that. And those are, those are, in my opinion, sort of drastically different cases, you know, and they're rare. Um, but, you know, you probably could get some data uh, off of children like that. You, know. you mean of taking, because we'll give hormones to them to try and guide them to being a particular gender? Right, exactly. Yeah. And a lot of times that decision is, sometimes that decision is made by the parents when they're young. Sometimes they decide to wait and let the child decide when they get older. But those are, you know, that's that's a whole different case. That They already have uh, um, genitalia, which might not match their chromosomes. Right. Right. So. All right. So now there's another issue to me. Uh, I, I This is a twofold issue. Uh, one is... Uh, Little kids have weird ideas, which we'll get to as the secondary argument. But for a first one, just in terms of diagnosing it. So like my experience, even with uh, being diagnosed with ADD, which I certainly do have ADD, but it's a weird checklist system that I think you can go to a psychiatrist with any potential disorder and walk out with a stamp of approval of, hey, you've got anxiety or, hey, you've got depression or, hey, you've got ADD. It's just a pretty simple checklist system of issues that like, it's just pretty easy to come up with a yes answer to like, I don't know. Do you ever feel uncomfortable in the mornings? Yes. All right. You're, you got anxiety. It's really not that hard to answer those questions and come out with one of those diagnoses. It almost, in my opinion, those questions do somewhat even lead the diagnosis. Now, I also have an understanding of psychology that there were incidents where they used to be very focused on childhood trauma. And they later discovered that psychologists were actually uh, planting false memories and that they were guiding their, uh, they were basically guiding patients into believing that maybe they had been molested or suffered other trauma because the psychologist was looking for that. And so they kept kind of said, well, are you sure? Blah. And then suddenly there's a false memory that basically psychologists instilled in you because they were looking for that basically in gearing your treatment. What's very odd to me in terms of the way people describe uh, the gender dysphoria is like, I would understand if every time you looked at water, you saw fire. Imagine you told me that every time, like literally I turn on my sink, pillar of fire is coming out. I go to the ocean, I see a forest fire. Like you just had something in your brain that every time you saw water, you literally saw fire. Then you would report that as factually every time I see fire like every time I see water, I see it as fire. You would just say, factually, I see this as this. A lot of what's being described is people who are miserable and uncomfortable. And then basically the questions being asked, well, do you have more boy traits than girl traits? Do you have more this than that? Almost leading people who might be uncomfortable, depressed or anxious or having other issues to say that this might be the solution. But that's a lot different than kids basically going, oh, well, I always knew that I was a different like I, I guess if there's a gender dysphoria, to me, you would describe it as I always saw myself as a girl. And when I looked down at my genitalia, I was confused because I knew that that's not what was supposed to be there. 
but that's not the way that most people seem to engage with this. It seems like more often than not, people have a misery or general like identity confusion that then is being led to a diagnosis of, well, maybe this is gender dysphoria. And that seems particularly difficult. I mean, we already, like we've already said, this is already, we're in the weeds because we're talking that 95% of these cases are going to resolve themselves. But I'm just saying, if you're looking at this, because you're an actual doctor from like a medical diagnosis standpoint, it doesn't seem to me like they got a great system. You know, like even I had ADD, you can't scan my brain and go medically, you have ADD. You're listening to my own faulty reporting of my lifestyle that's being influenced by a pharmaceutical company that wants to sell a drug and creates a checklist that it advocates for less checks on the list to get you the diagnosis so that they can sell a product. So I just, I hand it over to you that like, if we were to assume that it's true that there's gender dysphoria, how could you even diagnose that in a kid? Like, especially if it's not coming from their reporting initially. Yeah. If it's coming from a parent or a teacher or something, is that what you mean? a parent or a teacher or anything other than a kid just going, which obviously might even be guided at this point by a liberal parent, like listening to their kid and go, Oh, I think I got one of the gender that like with an right. odd excitement about it. But I'm yeah. just saying like, if you were to grant them the given that gender dysphoria existed, I would think the reporting would be kids who are blatantly saying like freaked out by their own genitalia and going like, wait a second, that's wrong. That's not what, you know what I mean? That doesn't seem to be the way people are reporting it. Does that make sense? It's like, if I were yeah. the starting point, yeah, go ahead. No, um, yeah, so, oh man, now I lost the plot. I was just going to say something. So it's so it's like, how, how do you make a diagnosis, especially in things, things like mental illness, any mental illness for that matter? And so, they, they, you know, there's the, what is it, the DSM-4, the DSM-5, you know, it's been out for a long time and that's sort of the guidebook. But if you look at it, it's changed over time. And there's so many diagnoses that that are, you know, cross-referenced and mismatched. I think psychiatry is 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 one of those fields where um, it, it's a challenging, challenging field. And, and you want to put, you know, it's easy to put people, oh, well, you have this condition and I'm going to put you in this box and this is how we're going to treat it. Right. And then you never go back and revisit the diagnosis to see if it was actually the right diagnosis. Whereas in medicine, let's say you came in and you were coughing and short of breath and I got an X-ray and it looked like there was a little something in your lungs. And so I gave you an antibiotic for pneumonia. And then you're back two days later and you're like, Doc, I'm worse. I was like, well, shit, that, you know, maybe it's a resistant bacteria or maybe you have a pulmonary embolus. You know, you've got to constantly rethink your diagnoses. Right. You know, is this the right one? And I think that does not always happen as often in psychiatry. Right. And, you know, I when I worked in the youth detention uh, center, um, yeah, I would have these kids that would be on five, six, seven different psychiatric me medications at the age of 12 to 16. And once you get above three or four medicines in a, in a system, you have no idea what how the medicines are interacting with each other. Right. So one, diagnosis is hard, and two, treatment is hard, right? And then, you know, it just like in, in um, certainly medicines can have a huge benefit. You know, think of antibiotics. Think of, you know, uh, like just what we can do in medicine is amazing, right? And the ability to save lives. But again... You, you want to not cause harm. And so, uh, 
making the diagnosis. You better be damn sure you're making the right diagnosis and not just, not just ha it's like a Munchausen's case is sort of what you're describing. That was uh, what I wanted to look up with you. Um, do you know the Eddie Vedder song Society? Mm, I bet I'm not great with song lyrics, so I bet like if you played it, I do know it. But my guess is not so, not by name. So it was from the Alexander uh, Supertramp video, and um, it, it has one of my favorite lyrics. Uh, and so it, this sort of points to that sort of what seems to be a disease of the left. And the lyric is this. There's those thinking more or less, less is more. But if less is more, how you keep in score? For every point you make, your level drops. Right? So, like, you get points for being this or being that. But then you want to not have any points because you want to be less. So right. it's like this constant battle, like, uh, of being put upon more and more and more. And that, that to me, seems like, uh, you know, certainly not all because there are definitely true cases that, like, we... we talked about but like there's so much push and so much set at us and you know not to mention as you said the money that goes along with all of it so going back to that diagnosis is very hard and there are certainly some people who are in the medical community who stand to benefit financially all right so we've gone into the weeds here because like i said at the outset once you know that 95 percent figure this is all kind of nonsense talk and it's the way that i like to process things of all right well even within their framework, like, does it make sense? Which is what we've been exploring. But now to take a step back and go, even if we didn't have that 95% figure, uh, we got like people go through weird phases. And I think the younger you are, the more weird, like, I, I'll just say two examples off the top of my head and then I'll hand it to you. Like, I remember, and this is something I've talked to a lot of other uh, men about, but that there is an age at which breaking stuff is very exciting. And then something just happens where you realize like, oh, I'm being an asshole and it's not fun anymore. Mm -hmm. But there's a step at which ruining other people's shit is a great thrill. It feels like what you were made to do. And then it's like the Adam and Eve story when they eat the apple and they realize they're naked. You just realize like, oh, I'm being an, like, this is not fun or cool. And I'm being a, we used to have my dormitory. I lived in a dormitory. There was a box that went into another building. And I used to collect stuff to throw off the second floor into the pit. I thought it was the funniest and funnest thing in the world. I'd find a microwave in the street. Great. I get to throw this out. And I used to ignore the fact that a dude had to go in there and clean it up. It was terrible. We used to all, all throw like glass bottles. We thought it was hilarious that all night you'd hear like glass breaking. And then at some point you become like a senior, like, why are we doing this to that janitor? Like we're being dicks. And, like you just realize and you stop doing it. Or like, I remember, I guess my sister's four years younger than me. And there was an age at which she would just like kind of be naked, like the little kid just like come down and like, you know, you didn't say anything because they're not aware, but then you grow out of it. You just like, now I'm not, I don't spend that much time around kids because I'm not weird. You know what I mean? But like, I also have heard from other people that like kids can be weird and doesn't really matter. So I hand it to you just like, if we didn't have that 95% figure, like how insane is it to just be listening to four or five-year-olds who seem to think that they want to be a different gender. That just seems like insanity. I mean, I think I told you my son was a dog named Paul Paul for two years. <laughs> he wanted to be called Paul Paul and we gave him dog treats and all that kind of stuff, you know, or we made believe they were dog treats and, you know, he would bark and bark his answers and whatever. He's was, he was a strange kid. You know, he grew out of it and uh, and he's the one that you talked to before. So he no longer identifies as a dog, you know, but that seriously was part of who he thought he was at that time. What you know? what age was that? 
was, he was like four and five years old. <laughs> right. So yeah. you personally experienced it. Can you imagine? Yeah. I think Louis J. Gomez has a joke about this in his special. Yeah. But can you imagine if you listened to your four-year-old and started medically transporting hair onto him so that he could live more like a dog? And right. if that was permanent, then when he became seven or eight, he didn't realize, like, why the fuck am I a dog? Like, <laughs> what am I doing? Yeah, yeah exactly. So, I mean, and, and it's it's like, the, it's called magical thinking, right? So they, you know, just how do you, it's a, a phase children go through, you know, it's a standard sort of growing developmental phase where they have this sort of magical thinking, you know, whether that's, they think they can get a chair and fly away. They just, they don't have the ability to think concretely, right? Brains develop differently. And especially in men, you know, our brains probably aren't fully developed until we're well in our 20s. That's so why we go through that stage of breaking things. I mean, I I was, you know, when I was 18, 19, 20, I was pissed at the world. I mean, right. I, would, I would search out, you know, me personally, I would, you know, search out confrontations. I remember we were on this fancy golf course. I was with my friends and I walked through a sand trap and the old, nice older man said something to me like, son, you know, you need to rake that. And like, I like lost, lost my crap. And I was like, what am I doing? So then I joined a boxing club and I thought I was really good. You know, I'm beating all these kids up and, and the trainer took me down to the, to the big city gym of Ithaca and I had to ever live in piss beat out of me. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, well, if I'm going to start a fight, I better be better at fighting. <laughs> like I am not very good at fighting. So <laughs> Learn, yeah, learn it like, the hard way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So now uh, let's uh, um, you were telling me we certainly saw an experience with Corona that it seemed like independent doctors were not allowed to share their opinion. I can see structurally without working in medicine, I can kind of understand what happens is that uh, there's licensing issues that large hospital conglomerates are really the only ones that seem to be able to afford uh male practice insurance. And uh, it's very hard to compete with the bigger hospitals because it's very tough to get licenses. And I'm sure that there's even more government funding and otherwise that kind of just flows downhill. And so you end up with socialism, which is top-down policies, whether or not they're right or wrong. Hey, this is what we're going with. Uh, and I think we all experienced that firsthand with Corona um, and that it was very difficult if you wanted to try ivermectin or something else. Uh, it was difficult to get your hands on it. It was very difficult to have conversations with doctors who weren't going to be pushing the vaccines. I mean, I think you experienced that firsthand that like you kind of didn't really have options other than following procedures that were handed to you. If I, I don't know. Do I have that right? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I definitely have, you know, it's, you know, <laughs> sort of don't ask, don't tell is my policy. But, right. But, uh, but um, so, but yeah, you, you can't be out in the open about certain things, whether you're doing it or not, or whether you oppose. I mean, you know, I can have conversations with my patients in the room behind a closed door, and those conversations can range like a whole gamut of, of, of things. You know, I, I certainly, you know, whatever it is. But yeah, Corona certainly showed me that there are limits onto your ability to disagree with the narrative. All right. So let's turn it to, because, uh, I mean, the powers that be do a very good job of, uh, appealing to authority, creating organizations with good titles, 
uh, like the World Health Organization. Well, the recommendation of the WHO or Hillary Clinton going as our intelligence agencies have said, uh, are you opposing the intelligence agencies? Are you trying to threaten the security of the American people? I mean, all of us are kind of in the know. We get this game. Uh, and uh, so you were telling me, because it was something I was unaware of, uh, but there are problems when it comes to the AMA, which is what, the American Medical Association? Yeah. So they're the ones that, you know, people have seen it on Twitter and us old people have seen it on Facebook and, uh, or, you know, all the other things. But yeah, the AMA, a lot of uh, people view the AMA as sort of the doctor's union. But the problem with, unfortunately, it's not a mandatory thing. And there's only one in five physicians that in the U.S. that actually belong to the AMA. So that's, it's probably even a little bit less. So it's about 20% of all doctors actually belong to that organization. Secondly, they're a huge, huge, powerful lobby. They give money equally to Republicans and Democrats, basically whoever's going to help them with the agenda. And their agenda has always been uh, to make to make money, and they make money by um, they are the ones that actually write the codes and help Congress uh, assign, you know, especially for like Medicare and things like that, what the what the cost of certain things are going to be. And I think you and I have talked about that again. And so they very, very much favor specialists and subspecialists. That's why if you came in and I saw you for an hour, you know, maybe for an hour I could get $200 from Medicare. Maybe not, probably more like 140 which, you know, not, not bad money for an hour's work. But if you came in and saw an orthopedic surgeon and he said, your pinky's broken, here's a splint, wear it for four weeks, see in four weeks, that's $500 for a five minute thing. So, I mean, that's that's one of the reasons. Other, other things that they do is they limit the amount of physicians that can be trained in U.S. And so that was one of the things, um, I believe it was Milton Friedman pointed out at one point that basically the AMA functions as an old school guild, which tries to keep, you know, every everybody out, you know. They set the number of trained physicians that can be trained. So only so many can go into certain specialties and that in itself limits competition and has an effect on the free market. Well, it, it's so, if you just take a step back and you go, why is healthcare cost as high as it is? Well, they're structurally limiting the amount of suppliers while getting government to increase demand. So what do you think is going to happen? I mean, if you just remove all other variables, just to that very simple one of uh, government money is increasing the demand for the product through insurance and covering everyone with insurance. And at the same time, providers are limiting the supply. What do you think is going to happen to costs? Very simple. Correct. All right. And then you were also telling me that uh, in the American uh, Medical Association, so firstly, it only represents 20% of doctors. It is, in your opinion, the lobby group that's kind of uh, distorting some of the pricing and increasing hospital profits. But within that 20%, it's not even like, necessarily your typical doctors. You're probably going to be looking at, you know, the guys who are the head of boards at hospitals, so they have to belong to it. And then you were also saying it's a lot of students. Residents and students too, who don't know any better. And they probably think that that helps them land the jobs out of school is if they're actually a part of it. Uh, and then, but the, the important takeaway just being, if you hear the AMA is putting out a recommendation, that's not actually representative of your typical American doctor. No, it's not. 
All right. So then this is all everything that's been a long setup because we're about to watch. Uh, Twitter was going nuts that Jon Stewart had absolutely slammed this politician in terms of having a conversation when it came to gender care. And now this one is a little bit off the topic we've been talking about thus far. And I got to be honest, I don't have a strong opinion on this because I, I, I think it's uh, I, I think it's an interesting uh, philosophical question, which is if you're if you're not a good parent should society intervene. And so uh, for let's even just say you went out to a farm in the middle of nowhere and you decide you're not educating your kids. They're going to be farmers. And you also believe that slapping them is, is good discipline. So it, should someone else be able to come in and say, no, these kids need to have an education and you shouldn't be allowed to hit your kids. Um, I see it both ways. I, I, I see it both ways uh, in that, yeah, you shouldn't be able to, no one should be hitting their kids. Education is important. So like maybe someone should intervene on those kids behalf, but then the implication of saying that someone else should be able to guide you in raising your kids. Well, then I think you, you would even talk to me that should we, should we stop Jews from, uh, from doing circumcision in synagogues? Should mm-hmm. I go to centers with Amish people and tell them, no, you need to have electricity. It just, it becomes a little bit of an issue of, uh, to me of like individual, uh, liberty and then who who knows better who gets to impose it you just run into problems so there's a Robbie, lot of, you, you yeah. do know you do know that there are people that would gladly stop that Jews from doing circumcision you mean if you they know? had the power yeah <laughs> um, yeah that, that's a whole look up males look up male circumcision and opposition in the US and that's that's a whole big thing <laughs> Right. But so I, I'm just saying yeah. that one, that's an interesting one of where right. like you even have it with abortion. So should a state and group of people be allowed to go, hey, we don't want this within our borders. Correct. Like yeah. it, so it, it, it's an interesting liberty question of should groups of people be allowed to group together and be discriminatory towards something, which obviously within our framework, we don't have that. You can't decide, hey, I'm going to go create this state over here and discriminate. You know what I mean? You're not allowed to do that. Um, uh all right, I'm kind of talking myself in circles. So I'm just floating that th- that's something that's going to come up in this John Stewart interview. And when Let's it comes it. To, when it comes to that particular topic, I don't have a strong opinion because I kind of I kind of see it both ways. All right, let's give this a watch. And uh, people in the the chat, tell me for some reason uh, I don't have this sound right. Why would the state of Arkansas, Doctor Krim, are you able to hear that? I can hear it. Yeah. Okay. Oh, step in to override parents, physicians, psychiatrists, endocrinologists who have developed guidelines. Why would you override those guidelines? Well, I think it's important that all of those physicians, all of those experts, for every single one of them, there's an expert that says, we don't need to allow children to be able to take those medications. That there are many instances where- But you know that's not true. You, you know, it's not for everyone. There's one. There's these are the established. Well, I don't know that, that that's not true. I don't know that. Well, then why you would you that. why would you pass a law then if you don't if you don't know that that's true? Wouldn't you well, I know so? that there are doctors and that we had plenty of people come and testify before our legislature mm-hmm. who said that, uh, you know, we have 98 percent of the young people who have gender dysphoria right. uh, that they are able to move past that and once they have the the help that they need no longer yes. suffer from gender dysphoria 98 wow. percent without uh that medical treatment that's, that, an, 
That's and an so incredibly made up figure. All right, so let's pause and start breaking this down. Firstly, starting with the very confident, that's an incredibly made-up figure. Uh, let's just start with that. So I guess 98% is three percentage points too high uh, from your best estimation of what you're actually seeing in medical journals, which is as high as 95%. Correct. Okay, yeah. so that's yeah. a fair starting point. Next thing that I, I, the next thing he does, which is very disingenuous, is I would think the burden of proof would be on people making a recommendation that we should interfere in kids' lives and give them these medications, you would have to have very strong evidence that this is a good idea. He puts it in the inverse where he goes, what strong evidence do you have to go against the guidance of the healthcare experts, right? And then he goes, well, for all those healthcare experts, there's other experts. And he goes, well, what experts are you talking about? Like, And so he's putting the burden of proof back on her. He's not saying what experts are making the recommendations and what proof they have that it's a good recommendation. And she goes, well, we watched legislative proceedings and I watched it, which is fair. I've watched legislative proceedings. I understand that you could sit there, you're making an executive decision, you're listening to the two different opinions and you're coming to a conclusion. I'll just say one more thing because it fits into our whether or not government should intervene. We have a problem here where government is already intervening in this marketplace to kind of advocate for these procedures. And so you could be looking at parents who are making this decision or doctors who are making this decision and going, there's an agenda being pushed here and I don't like it. And so as governor, we are going to ban this within our state because we don't think people are actually making a free and independent decision and it's harmful. So in that way, it's kind of corrective of what's already not a good system. Yeah. So I'm going to answer it from, so we talked about the medical ethics principles, but the first one is called primum non miserum, which is first do no harm. So that means if you're going to take an action, you better be damn sure that your action is going to lead to a good outcome. So the burden of proof is that the action is going to be a good one. And so the burden of proof would be on John Stewart and the other right. doctors to say, exactly. this is a good idea. And so just to break down how they can't possibly know that one, we already know that the odds are not in your favor because only 5% of kids going through this are going to um, benefit from it. And then some of those might not even benefit from it because we know that there's regret in terms of getting these procedures. Uh, two is, since this seems to be a pretty new phenomena of us treating kids in this way, you couldn't possibly have long-term studies that this has been a good idea because you couldn't have the data set for it. So I would just know that it is impossible to have good evidence of the fact that this would be a good idea. He does a very good job of turning it on her of going, well, what, like, why would you make a decision against these doctors? Well, it's because the doctors haven't made a compelling case. Those aren't the only experts. And I know that 95% of kids are going to resolve themselves. And I, I don't know why he so blatantly uh, dismisses the 95. Well, I guess she messed up by saying 98%. And so that left in the room to go, that's not true, which more. And you're, I don't know medical journals, but were you just looking at that gave us the 95% figure? That's like as credible as anything else. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. that, that's the high end. So there's a range, obviously. Right. So the low end would be 80 percent. So. Yeah. But even at 80 percent, it's lunacy. Even yeah. if you want to go with the with the 80 percent figure, all of the logic still stands of what she's saying. Uh, but yeah, I guess she left herself open to that rebuttal by being, a, you know, percentage points off. All right. Let's continue. That's that doesn't comport with any of the studies or documentation that exists from these medical organizations. What what medical association are you talking about? 
of these doctors. Well, we have all of that in our uh, legislative history, and we'll be glad to provide that to you. Uh, I don't have the name of that off the top of my head. I know it's something that you don't have the name of the organization that, that off you're the top of my head. Oh, okay. But yes, we have all of that cited in all of our briefs. You're suggesting that protecting children means overriding the recommendations of the American Medical Association, the American Association of Pediatrics, the Endocrine Society. We don't have a so we got to pause there again because it's he sits there with shock and disgust that anyone would make a guidance and recommendation against the AMA, which is just I mean, but it's the theatrics of like, look at how dumb you are that the AMA has made a statement and now you're going to make a recommendation against that statement. Uh, but as you just explained to us, the AMA, like this is not I don't know about the other associations that he mentioned are those more impressive recommendations. No. So they, I think what was the total something, if you group all of those groups together, the AAP, the AMA, and I'm blanking on what is it? The uh, Children's Hospital Association. It's, it's still a very low number of the total number of. And probably the ones that have invested in these facilities. Right. Exactly. All right. Let's watch a little bit more because I'm telling you, this was presented on Twitter of like, look, John Stewart has slammed anyone who's against this. And it's like, what are you advocating for? Like, I understand that there's a nuance in these topics and a reason to be accepting of individuals who are making alternative life choices. Right. The yeah. idea that kids should be making this decision for themselves is complete lunacy. Uh, and then, or I'd be open to it but I'd like to hear greater evidence, but like, I, 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 this is such a fucking turn where he's like looking at you in disgust that you would possibly stand in the way of medical science and the AMA who has come to the conclusion that this is a great idea for kids. Yeah. Enough data. We don't have enough to show that these drugs are effective and that these children are better off and that we should encourage these or it's not enough for you. Let, let me let me try and flip it a different way and see if maybe this, this can help. In Arkansas, if you have pediatric cancer, and obviously we all want to protect children, I think we established that earlier, whose guidelines do you follow for pediatric cancer? Well, I think if my child, who is four, if I was faced with that terrible uh, decision, then I would be speaking to my doctor. And if my doctor recommended something hey, hey, that Robbie. I disagree yes. with, and I would give a second opinion, and that's... All right, so let's talk about medical guidelines. Guidelines are just that. They're guidelines. They're not rules. They're not baseless. So if you take a look at, let's say, screening tests, right? So there's recommendations from the American College of OBGYN, the American Academy of Family Medicine, and uh, then um, and on, there's uh, USPSTF, U.S. Preventative Task Force. And just on mammograms alone, all of those guidelines are different. So, you know, you can have certain hematology oncology, which would be for the example he gives. And there might be a radiation oncology who has guidelines one way versus an oncologist who has a different guideline versus. Now, there might be some standards of care, but especially as you get into rarer or more unusual things, Guidelines are just guidelines. They are not rules. So right. you could have vigorous debate among whatever type of guideline on whatever type of treatment. And so. then also to go, there's certain that I believe that unlike cancer, this seems to be a little bit more politically motivated. 
And if a lot of attention was being brought to me that there was profiteering in cancer treatments that I thought were of danger to kids, then yes, the legislative process would be taking a look at those guidelines. We'd have hearings the same as I did on this one, where we would hear from a wide array of medical experts. And if the conclusion we came to was that some of these treatments were profiteering and not actually benefiting kids with cancer, then yes, we would intervene. You see, this is why I should be a politician instead of this dope. <laughs> All right, let's listen to another minute, and then I think uh, I think we've made our case here. I believe that these parents need to make sure that they're encouraged to get numerous opinions when they're talking about an irreversible step. You're not letting them. The state's not saying get another opinion. What they're saying is you can't. What you're actually saying no, is the opposite. No, that's actually not at all what the state said. The state simply said that you cannot perform these procedures. And so parents should get another opinion that they, and children should want to have another opinion. But that's not. Because again, these are 9, 10, 11, So if your child is suffering from pediatric cancer and the state comes. Well, she messed up on that one. Because what she meant to say is we've done our research and uh, we don't want this happening at all because we don't think it's beneficial. All right, let's take a look at uh, two more things. So this is a new video that has come out from uh, uh, the the place that does abortions. What's that place called? Uh, The Uh, Planned Parenthood. All right, so we're going to watch the whole video, but I I just grabbed this freeze frame because I think it's so encompassing of bad logic. So the freed frame is, this is a video and it's going to be advocating for puberty blockers. Um, So we're going to watch it. But this one line, I think before we go into it, just showcases the failed philosophy. And it's, you should be the one to decide what changes you want to make to your body. Like, that is a fantasy. You know, you should. I guess if you want to go have a visit with God, we should all be living in a world where we had all of our needs met all the time where you could pick a wife out of an algorithm and you had all the money and food you ever wanted. And you, you should be able to live in the house of your dreams. You should be able to have the wedding of your dreams. You should be in a marriage with a guy that never cheats on you. Sure. I guess that all should be part of our reality. Guess what? It isn't including the fact that when you hit an age, there's biology and you're going to go through puberty unless science actually has a good way of intervening on that, which is, this is part of the law land, a lot of land of all of this is that like, we're, we seem to be discussing science that doesn't actually exist. Like, in other words, if you could pause puberty, then it would make sense maybe to have a conversation about that. Or if you could easily change your gender, like if there were actually like, let's say we were fucking, we lived inside of robots. You downloaded your brain into an algorithm and your consciousness lived there and you could just install yourself into any body you wanted. Well, then the practicality of being male or female is basically ineligible. And then we could start having the conversation about that the fact that you don't need a male or female. Kids are made in a labs. But that technology doesn't exist yet. Like this to me, even amongst adults, uh, you don't end up with fully functional alternative equipment. It's a little bit like if you wanted to be a bird and they attached feathers, but you still couldn't fly. It's like you're not actually achieving the end. So it, to me, this is all kind of a la-la land conversation like, yes, we could live in a reality where gender is a meaningless, like, construct, but the technology does not currently support that. Yeah, yeah. It remind me to talk about, um, if we have time, designer babies and transhumanism, too. That all leads into that. All right, so let's give uh, let's give a, a watch to the actual uh, video, which I think we've already gotten your opinion on puberty blockers. But here's the Plant Parenthood uh, video, 
I guess, intended for kids who are trying to find more about uh, the puberty process. If you have a penis, here's how your body may change during puberty. Thick, curly hair may start growing in your pubic or genital area. There's nothing you need to do with this new hair, unless you want to. Your penis may get bigger and longer, and your testicles may grow too. You might start getting more erections when you're turned on, or sometimes for really no reason at all. For kids here. You may get an erection in your sleep and ejaculate or cum. That's known as a wet dream, and it's super common, especially during puberty. Your voice may get lower and might even crack sometimes, going from high to a deeper bass tone. Your Adam's apple, that bump in your throat that sticks out, might get bigger and more visible. Some people see big changes in their body during puberty. You might grow taller and your chest and shoulders could get broader. If this doesn't happen, it's not because something is wrong. Some people simply get taller, while others don't have much of a growth spurt at all. All of these changes may not happen at once. Puberty is when your body starts to develop in grown-up ways. It's all a work in progress right now. Your body is just growing in a way that's right for you. Want to learn more? Go to PlannedParenthood.org slash teens. Wrong video. There you go. That was... That was their general. I, I took the if you I took the freeze frame from uh from something else. All right, this was the uh um what I'd mentioned earlier, which was the stats that tw- um people even after transgender surgery are twenty times more likely than their comparable peers to commit suicide. As I was saying, that's not that to me is not like ultimate proof that this isn't a good idea because you're not giving me the comparative numbers. The comparative numbers would actually be helpful. Uh, Dr. Krim, we've done about an hour. Are you game to continue this conversation and talk about transgender more broadly? Do you have time? Yeah, yeah. I got a little bit more time. Sure. All right. Can, can I take a quick uh, pee break? Pee away, Robbie. Here, you want it? You can plug sheath while I go pee. I think you're a sheath wear. Did I make I that up? I do wear a sheath, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Promo code right. RYM for 20% off. There, you give the doctor's right. recommendation. I'll be back. All right, so you have your doctor's recommendation for sheath underwear. They're great, comfortable. Um, I have them. My sons wear them. Um, Highly, highly, my wife loves them, by the way, so that's a bonus as well. And uh, and then, uh, yeah, I don't really know what else to say. Should I say something about Robbie? Um, Robbie, Robbie's got a good handle on things, and he's a good dude. He uh, likes to joke around a lot, but um, he's a lot of fun to hang out with, and he's very, extremely intelligent. So it's always fun talking with him because he asks me questions that sort of challenge me, and uh, he has a lot of knowledge on a broad range of subjects. So I'm building up the host, and he's not even here to hear it. So there you go. As for me, what did I do today? Yesterday I split wood, took care of my chickens and the dogs, got my whole little farm thing going on here, so... I'm a big advocate of growing your own food if you have that ability. And now he's back. There you go. Yeah. Uh, all right. So now I wanted to break this into two parts because I, I think when it comes to the kids stuff, like it's just it, we just did an hour. That was too much conversation to be had on it. <laughs> if if only 5% of people are resolving this and we all know that kids can have goofy ideas about the reality, just just chill. It's like, just wait. Just wait it out. Just be be a good parent. Don't jump on this. All right. But now, originally, because this is something, I, maybe we can start from the transhumanism conversation. I, there's a quote I used to have it above my desk. I've mentioned on the show before. Chaos is just the emergence of new patterns not yet readily understood. I was I always really liked that quote. And so I do think with new technology, you can come to a juncture in time where the male-female title 
It's not all that important. Like I, I like, so I, 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 like I'm not now people from a religious perspective might go, we've had these frameworks for a really long time. It's plugged in with God's vision of the world. And we think that it brings a lot of benefit. And if you want to live within that construct, I think there's probably a lot of value to it. I'm not, I'm not negating that there might be value to some, like for even the majority of people to have that structure. But then I'm also not opposed to people going to experiment with new ideas. Like I'm, you know what I mean? It's like that, that, that to me, it's like going to space. It's like people are plowing a path of what might be a alternative lifestyle that might work for all people or some people. It's like any other product. Go try it out. I don't know. Maybe they're happier. Maybe they're not. I don't know. It's not like, you know, that's kind of maybe it's my uh, nihilism that I don't believe that uh, I can come to like firm grasp on these things. So I don't want to preach to other people. I almost think that like, maybe nobody's got good answers. So like, why, why is anyone preaching to anybody else? Uh, but my point being that from what you were discussing of like, if technology supported this, I guess I wouldn't be against it. And I'll hand it back to you in terms of like where technology can kind of, you know, bring us to in terms of procreating or even the necessary, like the necessity for male or female. Oh man, that's a choice. So I guess, I guess, I guess for me, you know, my, when, when I took medical ethics and bioethics, you know, you want to have your principles or your ethical system be aligned to support um, the possible, anything that could be invented in the future. So it's sort of like thinking of sort of like a science fiction writer. What are all the possibilities and what's the morality? And and we should decide that now as opposed to waiting for when it comes available. So like, um, let's say let's say we get um, the technology where you can make a, a designer baby. You know, you want a six foot tall blonde daughter who's athletic, musically gifted, and has an IQ of 140, and we have the technology to support that. Is is that something that we should do or shouldn't do? Let's say we can clone Robbie. You know, should we do that? Should we not do that? Let's say we have uh, something like what Elon Musk is talking about, where we can put tech into our brains, and then we become part man, part machine. You know, whole or a whole transhumanist, or we can change into something that can fly, or something that can swim underwater. You know, is that is that um, moral and ethical or not? And it's a long, long debate. And that I'll take a step. Go ahead. I'll take a stab at it. Sure. Well, it, it, it it's a two part answer. One, if other people want to go for it, go for it, because uh, it could be better. And I understand, like it's almost this thing of, well, that's not fair because that's cheating. So if that guy gets to cheat, then I have to cheat in order to compete. Uh, but even that's some some word of uh, uh, a failed logical fallacy, because let's say somebody designs their kid to be exceptionally bright. The idea that that exceptionally bright person can't do something that would benefit you uh, is like a fixed pie fallacy of thinking that that person's only going to extort from you. Where in, in reality, if rich people can design their babies to be exceptionally bright, they might actually invent stuff that would help everyone. It's like they wouldn't necessarily just be overlords with all of us serving them. That's not necessarily the way they would operate. They might operate that way. The other thing is I do think that we're at risk of um, uh, singularity 
computers and species from, you know, uh, other uh, like aliens. And so the idea that technology might be able to make us more advanced humans and not opening up that door, like to me, it seems like a natural step in human evolution. Now, it could be that it fails because there actually is a God and a creator and you can't hack your system. Sometimes I think of that even when it comes to like testosterone or like with any of these medications, like like at some point, is there like fixed human achievement built into the system, which is a possibility that like physics or whatever you want to call it has built a regulator on this that we're not going to be able to merge with computers. You won't be able to download your consciousness or CRISPR won't work properly. And for everything that you edit, you're going to end up with some sort of a different problem that you didn't perceive. That could be, but I wouldn't limit people's experimentation to go give it a try. Yeah. So I kind of, I, I, I fall a little bit on the other side of that. I, you know, I think, um, <clears throat> But I don't know, you know, because it's not here yet. So working through it, you know, just from, I, I, you know, you are what you are. But at the same time, you know, we are, you're already giving medicines and treatments, you know, for things that would have killed you in the past. So um, it's a tough decision. And I'm well, some of these are close. Crisp, CRISPR is basically here. And I yeah. would I would venture to guess that. I would just assume there's people that are using it. Like, I wouldn't think that there's not some rich guy in China or some other experimental program that isn't actually utilizing it. Like, I would almost be surprised if I people think, were. I think they, there was a story, and I, I am not 100% on this, where they did do something like that in China and made some designer babies already. Um, I, I probably could look it up in a second. But, but I mean, and the other thing, though, what I wanted to say is, like you mentioned, it might not, you know, the sort of fixed pie fallacy. I would say yes and no, but like these technologies are probably going to be expensive, probably won't be in the, so they'll be limited, you know, especially initially. So while the fixed pie files, yeah, I, I get your point, but then there's also the pol policy where you create almost two different races, you know, or almost two different species in a way you could say like, you know, you have like superhumans and regular humans, right? And so does it become sort of like the the Morlocks and the Eloy? Like, yeah, but I, I th at the same time, to me, it's uh, like I, I it's a more extreme version of things being unfair, and mm -hmm. that because now, like literally, your kids are going to be gods compared to my idiot kids. Like you're you're literally going to be a different category, but that doesn't necessarily take for me. It's like, so I still have to live with me and my dumb kids. The fact that you've got your brilliant genius kids, like you haven't, you haven't necessarily taken from my lifestyle of being with dumb kids. I just have to be more aware of the fact that there's someone that's greater than I am, but you know, like th there's always going to be people that are greater than I am achieving more than I am. It doesn't necessarily actually detract from my lifestyle or, or my life. See, I think, I think that the power dynamics would change that. I think that. Like my concern would be when you get, do you ever watch the boys on Amazon Prime? Yes. Right. So it's sort of that sort of thing. Like, right. there, you know, we, we want to think of like if, if, if there were super humans and they had super abilities that they would work for the good of humanity, but maybe they want it, you know, maybe they would want you as their, their, 
as that under their control. You know, people, you know, uh, the, the, the people have demons that, that make them want to control other people. You know, Mac, I'll tell you, when I, kids growing up, why won't you listen to me? It would be so much easier if you just listened to what I said. And then you wouldn't have to go through all this trauma and have to do that. And, you know, and that's me. And I, I no way, you know, want that for them. It just was a fleeting thought. But I think there are people who would, who want that control over others. All right. Well, listen, we're not going to answer all the scientific <laughs> questions that exist. Uh, yeah. All right. So let's get into, because uh, now I've just been starting to think a little bit more broadly because, I, uh, well, originally I was like, I kind of thought the trans thing was like, I don't know. It's just, you're born a man. And if you want to do something otherwise, like, yeah, like power to you, but it's, it struck me more like mental illness than it struck me. Like there was this idea that you could actually like that. I, I guess that there's a male and female brain, which would essentially, firstly, we don't have a full understanding of consciousness, but let's go that our brains in some way create consciousness. And so you're, you have the consciousness of a gender that's different than uh, your genitalia. So mm. my my first thought on that was like, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And I, I heard a speech from Thaddeus Russell. I was out in Portland uh, doing a gig and he spoke in the afternoon and he was kind of talking about um, uh, that libertarians should be more for uh, what, like the, the what's going on in the trans community. And then I kind of tied it in with my idea. And I was like, you know what? I'm open to this. I don't care. Like, firstly, it's not something I, I like if you're an adult, you want to go make your own decision, you go make your own decision. But now as the as I get confronted with the kid thing, I start I'm starting to reevaluate reevaluate my position of like how real this is. And so I'm going to start I'm going to break down some of my arguments for, in my opinion, like and this is not to say if you're an adult who feels more comfortable identifying as another gender that you shouldn't be allowed to do so or that like. Like, that's fine. I like I, I, I that doesn't that doesn't bother me, uh, but it might be important. Like, it might be important to society if we recognize it's an important distinction whether or not we recognize that as being mental illness on, on one on, on like one extreme side to another extreme side of something that should be celebrated, uh, because if it's mental illness, then while. People should still have the opportunity to live a good life. There is a stigma to that. And then you'd probably see less of it versus if it's something that's uh, celebrated as like a new advancement in human achievement of just how open we are to uh, the fluidness of sexuality and gender, then you're clearly going to see more, more of it. Right. So I do think that there actually is an importance of how is society going to label this now? Th th once again, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be accepting or mean to people that might be experiencing what we would classify as being mental illness. But from a society standpoint, it might be helpful if it is mental illness to label it that way, or if it's actually something that we could prove to be reality, then that does change the structure. But it's like, I don't know, I'm starting to get a little OCD in my thinking here. So I'll hand it to you. What, what do you, what's your general takeaway of uh, gender dysphoria is that some sort of a faulty wiring, like a body dysmorphia, or is or did is there some sort of a freak occurrence where people's consciousness actually is not aligning with uh, their physical anatomy? 
Oh man. So <laughs> mental illness. So what is a mental illness? So it's our, our schizophrenic, what we call schizophrenics today, were they the prophets of old, you know, and they, you know, or how do we, how do we define it? And, and mental illness is defined by a society and it's a variation or deviation from cultural standards and norms. Okay. Right? So um, specifically with, you know, the, the transgender uh, mind state, you know, for some people, especially those um, who persist into suicide. So is it there, are they committing suicide because they're ostracized by society and outside the, the norms of society or are they ooh, just got darker in here? Sorry. Or are they committing um, suicide because it's a mental illness? So that would be one thing. And the right. second thing is looking at, at, you know, I, I sent you, a link and, and some other data. I mean, there's been this quote unquote third sex that's been recognized from time immemorial, ancient Egypt, you know, Mesopotamia, all that kind of stuff where um, they were just, you know, American Indian tribes um, would have a third gender where just sometimes uh, a, a woman would hunt with the braves and sometimes a, a man would sit and do woman's work, right? So they it was just a matter of acceptance. So I think that, you know, there wasn't any medicine that was given, there wasn't things cut off or things put on. It was just like, okay, live that way. That makes you happy. That's fine. We'll accept you. You still have to do the work. You're still part of the tribe, right? And right. so so I guess in my ideal world, you know, we would have grace on people who who thought or or acted differently and you know kids will be kids and kids are going to tease other kids about everything i, I mean I, i'm sure you were teased I, I was teased everybody gets it um and and it might even be more so but that's why you got to you know, be louder and meaner and i'll right, teach your kids yeah. how to bully back i'll create that <laughs> seminar <laughs> yeah but you know it's it's just a matter of like of accepting people for who they are and where they are and, you know, maybe they'll decide that that's not who they were or want to be. Like, like we said, we change over time. I'm, I'm drastically different, you know, even as an adult now than I was 10 years ago. I mean, far different than I was when I was a teenager. You know, um, I have, I, as a teenager and a young adult, things were black and white. And now I have a lot more gray. <laughs> but some, some adults are very black and white. So I guess if I was going to answer this, you know, I think for some people it's a body dysmorphia and it is probably a, a mental illness. And I think for some other people, it's just the way their brains are, you know, now teasing that out. So, so in essence, right, the problem that I see is that we're celebrating it, going back to that, you know, and you get points for being different or points for being this or points for like social standing or, or, or things. And, and like, I don't think one, I don't think they should be ostracized, and two, they shouldn't. Neither should they get points for that. You just are who you are. That's who you are, right? You know, there, we 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 shouldn't have. We shouldn't force people into their decisions. I guess. I all right. I'm okay with all of that. So, um, we're both, I guess, kind of leaning towards this appear like that. This would appear to be a body dysmorphia. What are other examples in medical science of people just completely having like body dysmorphia? Cause there must be, I, I I'll phrase the question a little bit differently and then, you know what, let's pause there. What are some other examples of the phenomena of just body dysmorphia? 
Well, like anorexia is certainly one, you know, people right. literally, you know, you could be as thin as a rail and you still see yourself as fat. Right. And, and there's no way you can't change the mind. That's, that's who they are. Right. You know, um, other, other people just, you know, they might, there's certain people with strokes will will not recognize that a hand or a piece of them is actually them. You know, they they just don't even know that that they can't. What is this thing? Where did it come from? All that type of stuff. Right? That's wild. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting phenomena, and yet, you know they don't even realize that it's it's part of their body anymore. Um, and again, like I said, you know. Um, so those would be the two most common things, right? All right. So th- this is another one that I was thinking of. Maybe I'll have to track down Professor Lady on this. Uh, but the implications of us going with feelings over observed reality. So if in this case, we're allowing someone to say, well, since I feel as though I'm supposed to be this gender instead of that. And so we all go, all right, well, then that's reality. That seems to be like a a, a different approach to to life generally speaking in the sciences like it seems to like and then what else can you just identify as so if it's just that i feel like this so then on the sliding scale and i'm not the only person that made this argument so if you identify as being a cripple even though you're not a cripple like at what point should we maybe go well this is an illness so we're going to try and help you not like even in the anorexia example you know if you're not eating and a doctor's trying to convince you well, no, like you need to start eating better. You're not, ha- you're not fat. So then if we have an ability to cure people who are dysmorph, who have dysmorphia, because it's going to harm them perceiving them feeling like there's something that they're not, would that be a better approach? Or, or I, I guess it's twofold. It's like, because now you and I, we're not, we're not within this framework of accepting that someone can just feel something different than physical reality. And so we're going to say that's reality. We're more like if it's harmless to other people and you feel more comfortable in this case, like if that, like if that's the beginning and end of your mental illness is that you think you're, you, you feel more comfortable as a woman, even though you're a man, then it's like, just go do that. It doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. So, okay, fine. Yeah. So, and and if you're fine and you're happy and that's the way you want to live and you're not, you know, you're accepted and you're loved and, and everything great, right? But it's sort of the the forcing people into irreversible decisions. Right. But, you know, the real, the real, like, not the real, like things like anorexia, like body dysmorphias are incredibly complex and difficult to treat. The curate for anorexia is not good, just not good. You know, it persists forever. And it's really, really hard to make a change. So those true body dysmorphias, you know, there is increased rates of self-harm and suicide and things like that. So I get why if 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 we truly accept that there's a body dysmorphia with uh, people who are transgender, then, you know, you would want to make an... Sorry, we, we lost you there for a second. You seem to have accidentally muted yourself. I think you're you're, uh, you're currently muted. All right, we lost Dr. Krim for a second. I'm sure he'll be back. You want coverage like this, the only place you can get it is on the Run Your Mouth podcast. And you know why? 
because uh, we've got sponsors. We got people like the incredible yokratum.com, home of the $60 kilo, supporting the operation. And now we got Dr. Krim back. Uh, yeah. Sorry. All right. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, I probably have about five minutes left here. So sorry about that. All right, so, <laughs> let's let's close it out with this uh um with this last thing that I think I recently came across uh so uh because I think it it showcases the problem of the entire uh system and the socialism that we live under and the top down approach uh because I at first I was thinking to myself what doesn't make sense to me about this whole gender care is that if I was an insurance company I wouldn't want to pay for it because it's going to increase my rates. Uh, and if you're in the general population and you support this and the numbers are increasing, well, all of our rates are going to go up or maybe it's such a minority thing that like, it, it's not that expensive. Um, but it would seem to me if there's more people engaging in surgeries that are expensive surgeries, uh, that's going to get priced in. So I would just think if you're in the insurance companies, uh, you'd be fighting against this. If just from a profit standpoint, you'd be fighting against this being recognized as being, uh, good for people's health because you wouldn't want to have to cover it. Uh, and then I found out that it was a part of, I guess, Obamacare, uh, that this was uh, written in as being something that insurance had to cover, I believe, which if that's true, then that's why this all exists is because government has just created, it's actually removed the ability for honest debate and for people to decide whether or not this is a good idea by introducing funding for it, because if government basically goes at the starting point, hey, everyone has to recognize this and we are going to be paid for it. And I've even heard that there's issues for doctors um, if they want to decline this care. Like if you treat uh, men for low testosterone uh, and you don't you don't believe that this is a good idea for people, you're actually not allowed to not treat a lady who would identify as man. Is that accurate? I, I, I think I heard that as well. Yeah, I, I, I'm not. I, it sounds like it would be right. I, I'm not 100% up on all the insurance stuff. So. Right. So, but I, I guess just to close it out, um, because this is something I think about more and more is just how much socialism do we, like we, you know, we try and we try and pretend like we're living in a free country and laugh at like what Soviet Russia used to be. Uh, but I, I look at some of the frameworks of what we have here, and I'm like. It, it all just boils down to government money, that government money gets introduced to the system. And so it, like you can afford to have this narrative in a free market. People who live this way would all have to be within their own insurance policies. It would basically get priced out unless you're incredibly wealthy, which would make this even more rare than it is. If government steps in and mandates that every single person has to have insurance and that this has to be paid for, well, then you've created a profit incentive for it. Right. Which then also creates the ability for doctors to treat for it and market for it, lobby for it and for everything else that you're kind of seeing. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, yes, it's you're right. That being said, though, um, I, the, yeah, insurance is such a, a racket. <laughs> I, uh, I, we could spend a whole other episode <laughs> talking about insurance companies and things like that, I guess. So, yes, I agree with what you're saying there. The one thing I wanted to say to bring out, because one of the th reasons I reached out to you is that whole AMA letter. Right. Uh, and, and just real quick, you know, they are going against uh, trying to target what I would consider free speech. You know, so there you brought up about like limiting debate and limiting 
options, right? And so I do think that there's debate among physicians about what is the proper care for especially children, you know, and they bring up, I think they say, that attacks against what they want are rooted in an intentional campaign of disinformation. And they're calling for a federal investigation, not just of, of actual threats or actual violence, but just, you know, having a disagreement. And, and in medicine, I mean, we disagree about so many different things that have wide-ranging ethical, you know, end-of-life care, euthanasia, beginning-of-life care, you know, um, abortion. Um, there are so many things in medicine that, that should be open and available for debate, and that's where you find the answers. If you just shut down debate and then call for investigation against it, I mean, that's a, that to me is, is, is Orwellian. All right. Well, there you have it. Thank you for uh, making the time. Sorry, I'm so unprofessional that I didn't wake up at 9 a.m. Uh, I'm just I'm just an early riser, man. I know. You, look, man, you just need more beauty sleep than I am. I wake go. out of bed. I get out of bed looking this good. I know it takes you a little longer. Hell yeah. All right. Well, I hope to hang out again soon. I, I want to hunt a deer with you. That was fun. I shot Dude, a rifle. Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. come on down. I got right. lots of warm clothes. We'll have to bundle you up. Oh, some winter hunting. Do you need permits for that type of stuff? Or in your area, you can just get out there. Yes, we'll of course, we'll have a permit for you. Yeah, yeah, we'll figure it out. All right. Thanks, everyone, for hanging out. That's okay. our Sunday. Have a great one, Doctor. I appreciate it. Bye, Rob.